0: The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at eleven a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. We'll be reading from First Corinthians five, verses six and seven. This is the word of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven Leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and before your word. We open our hearts now, Lord. We want your word to sink into our hearts. We need it to shape us. We need it to teach us, to rebuke us maybe this morning. Have your way in your people this morning, Father. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, in 1995, the Bancroft Fire Protection District and the Lakewood Fire Protection District consolidated their services. Fire trucks, firehouses, and personnel from these two different departments became one big family. They served the western suburbs of the greater Denver metro area. The new name of the combined department was Lakewood Bancroft Fire. Now notice I didn't say they were one big happy family. There were bumps in the road for this new and larger fire department. The fire district boards that approved this merger thought it would be a more efficient and effective way at serving the community. But it wasn't starting off that way due to factionalism and behavior that was really detrimental to their unity and to serving the community well. Now, it's been said of the fire service, 100 years of tradition unimpeded by progress. Perhaps this was kind of ringing true. You see, both sides of this merge, they thought that they knew what was best. Neither one of them wanted to relinquish the traditions and tactics that they brought to the joined department. There was infighting and disunity, and things were not off to a good start. With the threat of a merger being undone and things going back to how they used to be, something had to be done to change this. A short time after this merge, to help bring some unity, the fire board brought in a new fire chief. His name was George Goldbach. He was a retired fire department of New York City captain. Now, legend has it that Chief Goldbach walked into the firehouse one day and asked the crew, who do you work for? When one personnel responded, I work for Lakewood Fire. And another, I work for Bancroft Fire, he fired him on the spot. Extreme circumstances call for extreme measures. Now, I've fact checked this story. We've got a resident West Metro fire historian here. He credits, he says it's not true. But he credits Chief Goldbach's success to casting a vision for a new identity as an organization. At some point, the collective leadership of the organization, they realized that a new name might help. Lakewood Bancroft Fire changed to West Metro Fire Rescue. If they didn't embrace their new identity, it was going to destroy them before it even got off the ground. They had a new name. They were part of a new organization. They needed to embrace it. They needed to become who their name already said that they were. Paul's appeal to the Corinthians in chapter 5 is to become who they already are, the redeemed people of God. And he wrote to let them know that there were consequences for not doing that. Paul gives instructions for purifying their local church and the members of it of reckless and unrepentant sin that undermined this new identity. In today's text, in the coming weeks, Paul's tone gets more urgent. The Corinthians needed to understand the urgency and the importance of purity in the body of Christ. In 4 verse 21, Paul essentially says, There are consequences for arrogant, self-centered, sinful living when he writes, Shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness? Now, Paul moves in this chapter from addressing factionalism and ideology to addressing sinful practice inside the church at Corinth. Our chapter today specifically addresses incest and a lackadaisical attitude towards sin. Litigation and sexual immorality are up next, so buckle up. The problem. What was the problem? Well, the Corinthians were not embracing this new identity. This was evident in the life of their community in the acceptance of a man who had his father's wife. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It is actually reported, like, can you believe it? It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The problem with this church member was that he wasn't behaving like a new creation. He wasn't behaving like the Holy Spirit was guiding his life. He wasn't living as if he had a new master. Now, the Old Testament forbid incest in a number of places, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And to top it off, this Corinthian church member was living in a way that wasn't even permitted. It was against the law in Rome. This man had taken his father's wife as his own. Now, the problem wasn't just with this man. The problem with the church was just as bad, maybe worse, Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? I think the primary focus of passion and anger in Paul's writing here is primarily towards the church. We read in verse 6, your boasting is not good. They were boasting in the liberty taken by this man to have his father's wife. Now, it's not clear why when incest was forbidden by Roman law and the Old Testament, why the Corinthians would be so lax about this. We've already seen that the Corinthians cared a lot about social notoriety and and a high social standing. And it could be, it's likely actually, that this man was a a high position in culture in their Mm. Corinthian world. It could have also been theological. They thought they were free to do whatever they wanted in Christ. Now I remember a number of years ago, I was leading a Bible study the mixed group, some, some people professed faith in Christ, some hadn't. And one of the guys who was a professing follower of Jesus, when he was confronted about an inappropriate sexual relationship, said, well, just a minute, I know that God loves me, and God loves her, and he'll forgive us, he'll show us grace. Now, this is not a follower of Christ's attitude about sin. And that's exactly what Paul's pointing out. And Paul addresses this attitude in Romans chapter 6 when he writes, What shall we say then? Are we, who can, uh, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? The follower of Christ has a new allegiance, and that is obedience to Jesus. Submission to his will for his or her life. This includes putting godliness and purity, the crucifixions of one's flesh, ahead of sinful self gratification. And whether the Corinthian motivation was caused by pride and a high social standing of the one sinning or by bad libertine theology, Paul's intent is very clear fix the problem. Paul ends verse 2 by saying, let the one who has done this be removed from among you. And We need to pause for a quick dive right off the bat into application. We need to apply these two verses, just what we know already, to our hearts. We need to consider as church members at Orchard today, is there unchecked sin in your life? Is there stuff that you need to repent of, that you need to turn from, Now, however painful it might be, we need the light of God's word to shine into our hearts. Is there any sin, however seemingly great or small, that you are not addressing with the power of the gospel? If there is, confess your sin to the Lord, to a trusted brother or sister in Christ. None of us should expect that we can fight against sin without help. Talk to the Lord. Come to your pastor or a brother and sister in Christ for help. Don't wait. If you're concealing sin, get after it. Because I guarantee you it's getting after you. John Owen said this famous quote, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Discipline yourself to confess sin before the Lord regularly. In doing so, we acknowledge our need for Jesus and for his work. We acknowledge that we are living by our own strength. We're not islands. We need the body. This is what victory over sin looks like. So what does the process look like? What does removing this one from the church in Corinth look like? A common line at the Scraybeck household is, if you won't have discipline for yourself, your mom and dad will. Not to visitors. We don't say it to visitors. <laughs> um, unless you think we're not hospitable. But Linda and I want our kids to learn to have self-discipline and self-control. Of course they need help with that, but they've come to expect that there'll be some accountability in the process as they learn that. Now, Just as with a child, sometimes discipline is necessary in the church. In this section, we get a piece of instruction about how to do church discipline. In Corinth, this member needed this discipline, and Paul outlines what the Corinthians were to do in this situation. There was an unrepentant, sinning member of the church who hasn't put on his new identity. Something needed to be done. The church member really allowed sin to rule his life, and the church had done nothing. In fact, they even celebrated it. Paul says, Remove this one from among you. Verses 3 through 5, follow along in your Bibles, please. For though absent in the body, I'm present in spirit, and as if present, I've already pronounced judgment. On the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, Paul skips straight to excommunication. Verse 2 Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In verse 5 that I just read, you are to hand this man to Satan. Verse 11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul says, I'm absent physically, but I'm with you in this. I want you to expel the immoral church member from your fellowship. When you're together, communicate this to everyone. The entire church was to know about this. Now Paul pronounces this judgment and he expects the gathered church in Corinth to do the same. And in in doing this and saying, when you gather, pronounce this, Paul acknowledges that the church has been given authority. It's Christ's bride, his redeemed people have the authority to do this. And Paul gives this strong imperative to them so that they'd understand the gravity of the man's sin but also their own sinful pride in allowing this man's sin inside the church for so long. The remedy Paul gives to fix the problem is at the furthest extreme that we'll see in the church. And that is to expel the unrepentant sinning church member. And this is for the church members' good. Paul says, deliver this man to Satan. That is, he's out of the church. He's out of the protection, spiritually and practically, that the church offers from the deceptiveness and the destructiveness of sin. Doesn't sound that good for him. Man, that sure seems mean. But think of it this way. If they let this man stay in the church under the guise that he's secure in Christ when all indications that he is definitely not, the church is just leading this man on. They're doing more harm for him than good. Removing him from the church is more than just taking his name out of a member registry. The regular participation in the Lord's Supper is to stop. The Lord's Supper is for members of Christ's body, those who've been bought by the precious blood of Christ and they've put their faith in Jesus. Jesus. The regular, interconnected relationships that are formed in the body of Christ were to change. Verse 11, again, says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. I think Paul is specifically, when he says don't eat with such a one, I think he's thinking of the Lord's Supper. Not all meals together. But the connotation goes much broader than just the communion fellowship. When Jesus says in Matthew 18 that they should treat one who doesn't respond to the warning about unrepentant sin as a Gentile and a tax collector. All their fellowship with this one was going to be marked very differently than it used to be. They won't live with him anymore like he'll encourage them spiritually because he's not showing any signs of spiritual life. We don't share life with them like they're a Christian. Our focus relationally with them becomes evangelistic. We want them to repent. We want them to see Jesus as their Savior and Lord, which means master. Think of your brothers and sisters sitting next to you today. If Paul were writing this about one of them, this would cause us mourning. We plead with them to repent, turn from your sin and submit to Jesus. The Corinthians weren't mourning. They were boasting in a sin. And in the gathered assembly it will be announced that he's no longer welcome to participate in the meeting of the local church like a member. I mentioned a verse from Matthew 18, and I want to take a little bit longer look at this passage because it's important when we talk about church discipline. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If you refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if you refuse to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18 kind of fill out the previous steps of what we'd call church discipline. And Paul seems to skip the steps that Jesus mentioned. Why is that? Well, this is an egregious and very public sin, likely of a high-profile member in this church, and it's infected the church in Corinth. So much so that they're celebrating it. Now, Paul would have known Jesus' instructions. He would have known the Old Testament precedent before that. But given the severity of the circumstance, it was best to remove the offending church member. Now, much wisdom has to be applied when church discipline reaches this level. The prior steps need to be handled with patience, love, humility. Let's walk through Jesus' words again quickly in Matthew 18. First, we go to our brother that's offended you. Now, the offense might be directly against you. Or maybe it's an unrepentant sin that you know about. And honestly, brothers and sisters, this this is a sin against you as another church member. Sin matters in the life of the church. If somebody's bound up by sin and captive by it, they're not free to mature and grow and give their gifts This puts the rest of the body at risk. Now, if they don't listen, when you go to them alone, Jesus says, go to them with another person or two to appeal to them to repent. Now, this isn't a willy-nilly process. We don't just, this isn't like Old West style. This is biblical. And there's a lot of wisdom for us to gain here. This is done with tremendous care, prayer, discernment. It's not done in ill will. It's not done in spite. This has got to be done in love. Now, this is for the good of our church and the good of those who are ensnared in sin. Matthew 7 is a famous text of Scripture where Jesus says to take the plank out of your own eye before trying to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. This applies here. We ought to have a clean conscience and deal with our sin first so that we might be able to approach our brother or sister in a loving manner in moments like this. Later in Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20, Jesus says, speaking of false teachers, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, Jesus and, or Paul or any other apostle, they never say don't judge. Their instruction is about the manner in which we judge. The reality is for the health of our faith personally, And for the church, collectively, we need to make judgments all the time. Now, some will say when confronted about sin, don't judge me. Who are you to lecture me? You can say what Paul says in verse 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, the heart of our response, that would be maybe snarky to quote that verse to him. The the heart of our response would be something like this. We're children of the king. We love you. We want what's best for you. And that's to live submissively to Jesus. Live obediently to him. We don't approach them out of perfection. We approach them because of Christ. And we approach them for the purity of the church, for their thriving and for their joy. Now, this process might happen regularly in a church when it never reaches the the tell-the-church phase. That's what we most commonly probably think of as church discipline. Guys, this is a tough message today. There are many people that like confrontation. There's probably even less that are good at confrontation. One, one commentator said that uh, church discipline is about as popular as public spanking in the supermarket. But church, we need this. It, this isn't a, if you want to do it, this is a command from Christ himself for his church. Pastor and commentator Doug O'Donnell writes, Today we think love means toleration of sin. We think open and affirming means anything goes. But in Scripture, love and holiness and discipline walk hand in hand. Care and confrontation skip along together. Because God loves us, he disciplines us. End quote. And he uses us together to go through that discipline process. One of my football coaches used to always say, of the physical discipline required to spend long, grueling hours training. Pain of discipline or pain of regret. It'll be one or the other and you get to choose. This brings us to the purpose. The purpose of the process is the soul of the sinner and the life and vitality of the church. Our text makes clear that Paul wants what is best for the unrepentant sinner and for the church. For both of their sakes, this man needs to be expelled from the church. Verse 5, you're to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. What does Paul have in view when he says deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? Well, Paul means that he wants this man's spiritual flesh to be destroyed by seeing the depravity of sin. So that he might repent, come to faith in Christ as his Savior. Now, could it be that there are also physical issues that come from sinning? Yes, possible, maybe even likely. Ananias and Sapphira died in Acts chapter 5 because of their deception and greed. Later in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that because some were taking the Lord's Supper in a wrong manner, that many were sick and some had even died because of it. Now, if if someone comes and tells you you're sick because of a sin or because of an ailment, they're being foolish like scripture tells us about some of those scenarios but it doesn't ever tell us that we know and we can point all that out but this should humble us brothers and sisters this should give us a sobering check on issues with sin it's destructive spiritually and potentially physically we don't treat it flippantly it's a big deal now, Paul is thinking remedially. He wants restoration, and he wants a problem fixed. Paul wrote to Timothy about a separate process like this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18-20. through 20. Paul writes, this, I ch- this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. They were handed over for a purpose, to learn not to blaspheme. Now this word remedial, I go like professional setting, I feel like that word gets tossed around, and it's a heavy word. It's got a negative connotation, But I think it's mostly because we're prideful. It's because we don't like to own up to anything. We don't like to admit that we need help. The purpose of remedial training or correction is to fix a problem. And and who wouldn't want a problem fixed? Now, this man in Corinth was taken over by the sin. He wasn't struggling with it. Okay, Good, Good discernment here. He wasn't struggling with it. He gave himself over to it completely. And he doesn't want any remediation because he's, no pun intended, in bed with a sin. Now, as long as he's in the church and he's coasting, he's not dealing with any natural consequence for his sin. Paul continues in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul uses an illustration about leaven and what we call yeast today. Did Did you know that one gram, that's a very small amount when you put it on a little scale. In one gram of yeast, there's approximately 20 billion yeast cells. Just a tiny little bit of yeast infiltrates the entire loaf. Get rid of the old leaven. Even if it's one guy in Corinth, he's sabotaging the entire loaf. A number of years ago, one of my uncles had colon cancer. He had surgery to remove it, and then a few weeks after his surgery... He developed an infection, and it wasn't caught right away. That gave the infection time to literally poison his entire body. It circulated this infection through his whole system. Organs started to shut down. He nearly died from it, doctors told him. He said if you maybe just a few hours longer had waited, you might not have made it. Is it my uncle's infection that he almost died from? A lot like sin that goes untreated in our lives and in the church? Paul is saying, get rid of sin before it kills you. It's not trivial. Embracing sin isn't who we are as a new lump. Now, you'll be happy to know, within the last five to ten years, in pre-hospital and emergency medicine, great strides have been made in dealing with the number of deaths that were resulting because of infection. The way that the mortality rate has been affected positively has been through early detection and early treatment. To eradicate sin, it's got to be detected. And have no fear. The Holy Spirit will not stop convicting us of sin if you're a born-again believer. You have the Spirit He won't let up. He does that for our good. To protect us. To steer us to righteousness. To steer us to Christ. Now sometimes the Holy Spirit might use a brother or a sister in this. And if I'm still not getting the drift, the Lord's put the church around me. To help me. The treatment is acknowledging your sin. Turning from it in obedience to God. And God's made a way. He's made a way because he offered his son as our Passover lamb. He's freed us. He's freed the Christian from sin's bondage. It isn't somehow virtuous then to sacrifice the rest of the body because we don't want to confront sin. Now instead of being captivated by his sin, we ought to be captivated by our Passover lamb this is what we do as the new lump this is how we become who we are we don't celebrate with old leaven we celebrate jesus we we dwell on Jesus' goodness we look to his obedience to the father there was obedience even unto death he's our example he's our new lord and master and we serve him now we have new desires In chapter 11, Paul instructs the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. He says in 11.26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a regular habit of the local church. This is one of the primary ways that we remind ourselves every week that we're a new lump when we proclaim his substitutionary death on our behalf. He's bought us with the price of his life. God cares about the purity of his church because we're his dwelling place. We're the new temple, his representation on earth. In chapter 3, verses 17, excuse me, 16 17, Paul's begun this illustration. You know, I'll mention it again later in chapter 6. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. What you do with your life matters significantly. You don't represent yourself, not anymore. You represent Christ. We are now his temple. Discipline yourself to deal with sin. Or others will need to for your sake and for the church's sake. Ongoing, unrepentant sin has no part in the new lump. This is the purpose of the process of purging sin from the church so that the Corinthians would become who they are. The place. Finally, Paul gives us the context that this process is to happen in And its importance. He adds clarity to something he wrote about in a previous letter. Though we don't know exactly what he wrote, this is what he says. Verses 9 through 13. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater a viler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God will judge those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, it's a, I think it's as if Paul's trying to get ahead of this natural tendencies that Christians develop To form the kind of a holy huddle, right? Now, were we to, you know, holy huddle, you just spend time with other Christians. You don't, you practically, for all intents and purposes, you just ignore people who don't follow Christ. Now, he begins the whole point saying he wrote about this previously not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, he didn't mean the sexually immoral outside the church. He meant the sexually immoral inside the church. Now, as Christians, we're called to love our neighbor regardless of their beliefs, their lifestyle, their background. Paul makes the obvious assertion that if that was the case, that we'd have to leave the world if we couldn't be around unrepentant people. But Paul does mean that our association with someone who claims Christ but doesn't repent of sin needs to be evangelistic and not the same as it is with believers. Now we'll continue relationship with non-Christians for the purpose that we might proclaim the good news about our Passover lamb and we'll call them to repentance. And Jesus Again, Matthew 18, he says we'll treat the unrepentant sinner like a Gentile and a tax collector. This is what orients our ongoing relationship with the one who's expelled from the church. And this is what orients us towards those who haven't put their faith in Christ yet. We're to love them, to care for them as image bearers, to seek to evangelize and proclaim this good news about Jesus to them. This is what marks our fellowship with them and gives trajectory to all of our relationships. Now on this side of heaven, because three verses later Paul says we will judge outsiders, but on this side of heaven, we don't judge outsiders like we do those inside the church. We seek to evangelize them. We cannot expect sanctified behavior from people who don't have the spirit to guide them. Our first goal is to proclaim Jesus to them. They have an advocate before the Father and that is his son, Jesus. Now when the church, who's following obediently and closely after Jesus, treats sin seriously, applies grace and abundance, and announces this good news to others, we're living as this new temple, as we're called to. We are being who we are. And oftentimes in the church today, we elevate sexual sin that causes us to overlook and neglect calling out other sins. And Paul's addressing the sexual sin of incest in this chapter and spiritual apathy. But he mentions sexual immorality and greed, idol worship, reviling language, which is abusive and demeaning language, drunkards and swindlers. I like the expanded language that Craig Blomberg uses to describe what Paul lists here. He says, disciplinary action is equally incumbent in situations of financial mismanagement and fraud flagrant heresy, repeated abusive and addicted behaviors, prolonged rebellion against authorities, and a variety of other serious social sins. Blomberg ends by saying, we shouldn't then look at non-sexual sins as somehow more trivial. Is sexual sin different? Yes, in some ways, and we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But Paul draws attention here to the fact that any sin that would ensnare us needs to be handled with seriousness. Now, as we end today, we need to consider a couple invitations. If you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Christ, you're invited into this church, the family of God, where you'll find encouragement, grace for the moment, And love that doesn't look the other way when you're struggling with sin. But love that helps you through it. Helps you battle it. Helps you overcome it. You're invited to put your faith in Christ and join us as we pursue this great God together. It'll cost you your life. But giving your life to Christ, you'll actually gain it. You'll have victory over sin, and you're going to progressively grow. It's frustrating, but you're going to progressively grow now in this life. And you're going to be perfected for all eternity with Christ. Now, if you're here today, and you are on the journey of faith, you've put your faith in Christ, and you're following him, and if you're hamstrung by sin, I want to invite you to be accountable about it. There's nothing magical in confession. It's not a hocus-pocus kind of fix-it deal. It's an acknowledgement before God that you're imperfect, that you've messed up and you need his help. He's made a way through Christ. He's given you fellowship and close relationship with those in the body who can help you. Confess your sin today. Turn from it. Get help. Press on. Please stand, and I'll close in prayer. Oh, Lord, this is a hard word for our sinful hearts, our hearts that struggle. Lord, we need this, and we see your love in this. We see that you discipline the son and daughter that you love, and we see this as as a loving body that this would happen, Lord, It's tough, it's hard, it's gritty, it's not easy. But, Lord, we pray today, we ask you for courage. Holy Spirit, fill the sails of those who are discouraged by sin this morning. Be glorified through your church, Lord, at Orchard. Give us the strength we need to continue to pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen.